0: Welcome to Impact Drivers, a podcast about how entrepreneurs can build businesses that create a better world. I'm your host, Jen Helms. Welcome to the show. According to the National Assessment of Educational Progress, only 35% of fourth graders in the United States performed at a proficient or better level on the 2019 reading assessment. Our guest today is Michael Lombardo, the CEO and founder of BookNook. BookNook is a company on a mission to get all students reading proficiently by ensuring every child has access to a world class reading teacher. Prior to starting BookNook, Michael was the CEO of Reading Partners, a children's literacy nonprofit. I wanted to invite Michael onto the show to learn about his entrepreneurial journey, how Booknook has been able to adapt to distance learning, and discuss some of the high-impact changes Booknook has implemented over the past year.
1: Hi Michael, thanks so much for joining the Impact Drivers podcast today.
2: Hey Jen, thank you. It's an honor to be here.
1: So, Prior to starting Book Nook, you were the CEO of Reading Partners. Can you talk about Reading Partners and your experience being its first CEO and growing it into one of the largest literacy nonprofits in America?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I have had a a passion for literacy and the opportunity it creates for children uh, for most of my career. I started out in higher education and saw the sort of downstream effects of uh, what happens when we don't do a good job, you know, supporting children with those foundational skills. Um, And uh, so I I came to Reading Partners and saw in it this um, wonderful bridging between community volunteerism and um, the needs that were in public schools. And, you know, it had a model that seemed replicable to me, uh, that you could do this in other places. Um, Mm -hmm. And So, you know, with the help of a really fantastic board of directors um, and an amazing team that we built um, over the 10 years that I was there, um, you know, we're able to take a model that was doing amazing things for kids in six schools in San Mateo and Santa Clara County, California, uh, and to expand it to 14 cities uh, all across the U.S. And to, you know, ultimately uh, reach uh, almost 15,000 children a year uh, by the time that I left. So it was a really, really amazing experience, I think, taught me yeah. Taught me a lot about how to think about scale in education.
1: Yeah. Great. Okay. And, and so the model with reading partners, could you clarify that a little bit? So it's, it's, it's one-on-one volunteer based, correct?
2: Yep. Exactly right. Yep.
1: Yeah. Okay. So, so then what a, was it about this experience that, that influenced you to start Book Nook?
2: Yeah, it was, uh, People telling us how big we had gotten at reading partners serving 15,000 kids a year when early reading is a 20 million kid problem right um, and right um, exactly so I think um, you know uh, I didn't get in this business to be a band-aid I really believe in the power of systems change and you know how we support kids at scale and, and actually solve social problems and so um, you know we we published you know multiple randomized control trials showing the efficacy of reading partners but in one of those, we also studied the cost. Um, and what we found was when you kind of priced in all of the things that it took to make volunteer tutoring happen, it was like over $2,000 a student a year, um, oh. which surprises people, right? Because you think volunteers, it's free, right? It's free labor. Right. Um, but all the management, supervision, the criminal background checks, the curriculum, like by the time you added it all up, it was, you know, it was at a cost that it was clear you couldn't scale to millions of kids. Um, and so, So the thought exercise of BookNook was sort of, what if you could have that same impact, um, but not spend, you know, $2,000 a kid? What if you could do it for, you know, $50 a kid? Um, And what would that have to look like? And so so what that really kind of led me to the sort of aha moment of technology um, and of this idea that, you know, the the least expensive way we can have impact to kids is to leverage the assets that are already in communities. And so, instead of coming in and saying we have to go recruit 100 volunteers, what if we could use the families that are already in school? And instead of saying we're going to go hire, you know, a program manager to oversee the program, you know, what if uh, a local nonprofit that's already doing community work could play that role? So the idea of BookNook was to sort of take technology, codify what was proven to work for kids, um, but but move away from the idea of you know we're going to come and build a program, uh, and instead to sort of lift up the programs are already there and give them the training and tools they needed to do this work and and then be able to do it. Yeah. At at vastly greater scale.
1: Great. Yeah. And I imagine there's some aspects from, from reading partner you've tried to bring in, like it was designed, BookNook has been designed for in-person learning, correct?
2: Yeah. We designed it for in-person, although now we do both distance learning and in-person. So we've, We've all had to pivot during the pandemic, right? Um, but yeah, we did. We based it very closely on the reading partners model In probably the alpha. It was all one-on-one tutoring um, and it was all face-to-face. Um, but, you know, the, the wonderful thing about technology when you sort of release tools like this into the wild is you get the collective wisdom of you know, thousands of teachers and community members mm. all across the country. Um, and so they will surprise you. They will do things you didn't expect. Um, and Teachers in particular are incredibly resourceful, and you yeah. know will will not give up until they figure out how to make things work for their students. So, so we would find things like uh, teachers were you know wanting to use Bookmap in a group setting, and so they were like doubling kids up on the same device, um, and that was both not very fun for the kids because they didn't get their own device, um, but also mm-hmm. it was like screwing up our ability to personalize because the data we were getting from each student was kind of mixed and mashed with other students, um, and so. We, about a year after releasing our alpha, released a small group version of Booknook. Nook. And uh, overnight, 90% of our usage became small group usage. And, oh, and it, was, it was clear that that was what our users wanted. Um, once we released it, almost everybody shifted over to it. And to our surprise, you know, we were sort of, of holding our breath, uh, expecting that we were going to see a diminishment of results for students in small groups instead of one-on-one. Uh, mm-hmm. But what we actually found was the small groups performed better. Um, students that did small group tutoring showed more reading group growth than students who received one-on-one tutoring um and, and we think that's because of, of kind of this peer motivation factor that happens and um, that that kids collaborate and excite each other and mm. um, are more engaged when they're working with a peer um and so so yeah so i would say the the earliest versions of book nook you know looked very much like reading partners um at least in, in kind of structure we developed our own curriculum and, and ip but um but then, you know, over time, as we saw what users were doing um, and listened to what teachers were asking for, um, it, it evolved to be today now now pretty different, where, you know, the vast majority of our usage is small group. We also then found teachers saying, while I'm doing this small group experience with Booknook, what's the rest of my class doing? Um, mm. And uh, so we released a classroom program wow. <laughs> for, you know, one to 20. Uh, and then, of course, uh, even before the pandemic, you know, one of the, the groups of students that people are very focused on our students who speak a language other than English at home. Um, right. And uh, and that's been a population that has been um, disproportionately affected by the pandemic. So that, that needs one grown larger. Um, and so, you know, we heard from teachers like this doesn't work for my Spanish speaking students. And so we released a Spanish language program. And so we've tried to, you know, really stay close to the classroom or that local nonprofit that is our partner, you know, kind of hear from them and observe what they're doing and try to, you know, continually evolve and iterate and, you know, sort of make make it better. Um, and the result has been, yeah, it's just sort of Book Nook has, you know, kind of become its own thing. Um, yeah. To me, it's delightful and exciting. You know, I'm, I'm a parent of four. And so it's like you watch each of your kids kind of like develop their own personalities and their own, uh, you know, strengths and passions. And I, I feel like I, you know, I get to see both the Reading Partners kid out there doing the Reading Partners model, which is also amazing and highly effective. And now I've seen Booknote kind of develop its own personality and its own character. Um, and, and so, yeah, it's a, it's a joy.
1: Okay, great. Yeah, so you started to, to hint at it a little bit, but along those lines of the iterations you've had to do, can you talk more about the changes that COVID-19 has brought, having to move fully online and and what that transformation has been like?
2: Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, sometimes it's better to be lucky than be good. Um, and <laughs> Uh, when coronavirus hit, it, it turned out to be that that some design choices we had made in how we built our app made it work really easily in distance learning, um, even oh, though we had designed it for in-person learning. So, you know, there's a, a function that we use that um, synchronizes the devices so that, you know, the adult can kind of control what's happening on the student screen, and we can always be kind of doing the same stuff together and collaborating and uh, we very wisely chose to do that over the internet rather than Bluetooth, so that the devices didn't have to be near each other for that to work. Um, and so, um so yeah, so we basically within two weeks um, of you know schools all began to close down, you know that second week of March, within two weeks, we were fully distance. Uh, we were able to keep about forty oh, percent wow. of our users online. um so we did see some losses, mostly because of the really terrible digital divide issues that right. were uh underreported at first during the pandemic and then really people came to understand as months wore on. But um but yeah within two weeks we were back to 40% of our usage pre-pandemic. And now we're at like 10 times our usage pre-pandemic. And oh about
1: so, wow. 10 times.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's been um a period of of really exciting growth for us. Um, so like I said some of it was fundamentally that like we were just fortunate that the way we had built this program transitioned very naturally and easily into the distance learning space. And now we're finding a lot of districts adopting our program for next school year, um, mm-hmm. you know, because of its fluidity, because it, they, you know, are, they've all been, you know, uh, kind of traumatized by the experience of having to close their schools and, you know, all the uncertainty with that. And I think they're, they're never going to be caught unready again. And districts are, you know, imagining a future, even if we are reopened in the fall, where they might have to close back down again. And so, right. I think tools that can, you know, sort of say, yeah, we can, we can do this in either context um, and be effective in either context. I think meet a huge need, which is like just giving, you know, administrators and educators peace of mind that if they start with this program and the unexpected happens, the program can keep going.
1: Great. Yeah. And so you have published some results of, of the outcomes with this fully online model and that you've actually been able to reduce the covid slide. Can you talk about the covid slide and how Booknook has been such an important intervention tool?
2: Yeah, I mean st- studies keep coming out. We just got another one that the 74 produced uh, earlier this week, you know, showing the effects that school closures and the disruption of the pandemic have had on on student achievement and yeah. You know, it's it's really concerning. Um and you know, students, uh, basically, even the the spring distance learning plans at their best were sort of, you know, quickly put together and, you know, were designed more to kind of be a safe place for kids to come and have experiences and less about, like, actually, like, teaching a curriculum. Um, and so, so you had a about a nine-month period there, you know, or not a nine-month, excuse me, about a six-month period where kids were, were more or less outside of a structured curricular environment. And, and then... You know, when schools began the fall, now with a little more time, we we had more curricular structure. We were better equipped to do distance learning, but the data are showing us that that still is not nearly as effective as what usually happens in the classroom. And then, of course, there are huge concerns about the students who are missing right now um, who are not attending distance learning programs, and who uh, are estimated about 3 million children nationwide. And oh, so, wow. um, Yeah, some of How them are... High? It's yeah, it's a huge number. Um, Some of them are students that would have that like, so kindergarten enrollment is what's down the most. So some of them are kids whose parents, Mm -hmm. most states don't make kindergarten compulsory. And so, so many parents just decided not to enroll their kindergartners. But then yeah, um, there are, you know, across grade levels districts are dealing with, you know, I think Chicago public schools said they were down like something like 5% on their enrollment from a year ago, which to a district the size of CPS is like a huge number of kids. Um, And so so I think there's you know concerns both about like our kids getting what they need during the pandemic and, and we're seeing achievement gaps widening because of that. And then um, you know, also concerns about the students who just aren't participating. You know, what we were able to see with BookNook um is yeah, that we were in the spring, you know, the focus was mostly on like prevent the slide, don't let kids go backwards, which is what decades of research on summer learning loss have shown us that when kids aren't in structured school, they tend to slide backwards in reading and math. And we were able to find that, that students who logged just about three hours of BookNook time between uh, April and July, um, 90% of them showed no COVID slide at all. So they at least like held their ground and kind of stayed where they were. And um, over half of them actually advanced in their reading skills. So they were still making progress um, and mastering standards and moving up to more complex and challenging text. And when we compared the overall school year performance of 2019-20 versus 2018-19, we found that our students on average made uh, more than double the progress um, in reading over the course of 2019-20 than the year before, which um, is pretty extraordinary considering that they only got to be in regular school for about, you know, 60% of the 2019-20 school yeah. year.
1: Oh, well, that's interesting. Okay. So, so the impact seems like that your program was able to have is beyond what they were able to uh, achieve without your program, even with full-time in classroom school.
2: Yeah, we're in the process of um, doing our first um, comparison study during distance learning. So, you know, the, the research nerd in me wants to be careful to say what we can say is that the BookNook students showed this much gain. Um, right. It is harder for us to say uh, other students who didn't use BookNook, you know, made less gain. Um, mm-hmm. And that requires us to look at a, a control group. Um, so, we're doing that right now. We We are partnering with Teachers College at Columbia University. Um, and uh, we'll be putting out this summer what is um, uh, we think will be one of the very first studies anyone's done of uh, the efficacy of these kinds of technology tools during distance learning, specifically looking at children who participated in Book Nook um, as part of a distance learning plan and comparing um, the gains those students made with students who are comparable but did not participate in the program. And so, so stay tuned on that.
1: Yeah, interesting. Definitely looking forward to Hearing more about that. Um, so, given the positive impact BookNook can have fully online, has this resulted in you thinking about changing your model for good to a fully online model, or how has that impacted your thinking going yeah. forward?
2: Yeah, um, distance learning is here to stay. Uh, it is not going to end when schools start getting back to normal. Um, mm and it was already a thing, um, you know, K-12, there were online charter schools, um, so so it, it existed pre-pandemic um, and met important needs for, you know, children who, for health reasons, couldn't physically go to school, or for developmental reasons, couldn't go to school, or, you know, for people who live in very rural and remote parts of the country, like, it, it was already a thing, um, and I think what schools are finding is that it can you know be a really valuable part of the overall suite of educational supports that they're offering. So every superintendent I talk to um, you know is is expecting there will still be a distance learning program next year. Um, hopefully you know there will be in-person options as well. And um, I think you know there are parts of teaching that can be fulfilled in a distance environment even at the school physically. So the the space we use the most in is for what's called intervention. So when students are struggling with reading or math, and they're being sort of pulled out of class to get extra help, you know, normally the person who pulls them out of class is is like physically there at school and you know sort of works with them, small group uh, or one on one, but that's that's a difficult and expensive thing for schools to do. Uh, and so if instead that same intervention could be delivered by a virtual teacher who is still a trained credentialed, you know, amazing teacher, but who is working with the student over Zoom, um, you know, we can reduce the cost of that um, by, you know, a factor of about three um, and uh, and also make it more flexible and more fluid so that schools who you know, are trying to coordinate intervention for lots and lots of kids if you only have one interventionist in your building and they've only got eight slots a day that they can do intervention like it it just becomes difficult to meet all the different needs of your classroom teachers and your students and so mm. so i think things like that like saying actually you know intervention is something we deliver more and more by remote teaching because we both you know save money make it more flexible and then we can extend the reach and we can do this during the after school program we can do this at home um, and You know, you just get so much more opportunity to connect students with meaningful live teaching if you remove the restriction that that teaching has to be delivered by somebody who's sitting next to that child.
1: Interesting. Okay. So something else that seems to be a a new change to your business is an equity-based pricing model. Can can you talk about what that model is and and why it's a different approach to pricing in edtech?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Thank you for asking about it. It's something that we have been hoping more companies would follow our lead on. Um, You know, a lot of white privilege is not reflecting on the ways that your privilege affects others. Um, And I think there are parts of very common pricing structures that are used in uh, software and education technology that have equity problems. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, for example you know if you charge per student as most um education technology programs do they charge a per student fee um and if your program like ours is used for intervention uh, meaning that it's it's for kids who are struggling then you automatically end up charging the highest need schools the most because they have the most kids who need intervention um and so mm-hmm. so really equity based pricing from us was, was sort of came from a reflection on the ways in which we were failing to Think through the equity implications of our actions um, and trying to correct that. And so, so we, you know, as the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, sort of um, inspired many companies. We we really, you know, wanted to take action and to not just reflect on the problems of the ways that we were doing things, but make real changes. Um, and equity-based pricing kind of came out of that. And and mm. said basically, you know, we're going to do a few things. One was we're going to take into account the relative privilege of the school or community that we're serving um, when we set our pricing. So we're not going to just say everybody pays the same or we're only going to have discounts based on volume. Um, instead, we we just take into account the percentage of students who participate in the National School Lunch program and we just give you a straight discount based on that, um, based on your NCES data. And then we also, uh, like a lot of programs, used to charge extra for our Spanish. Right? We would charge you for the English version of BookNook and the Spanish version of BookNook. Um, and again, that that means that the schools that serve lots of newcomers and Spanish-speaking students have to pay more um, than schools mm-hmm. that don't. Um, so now we include Spanish at no additional cost. So every school gets access to our Spanish program, and we don't charge you extra for it. And then we also, like a lot of programs, used to charge you extra for summer, like your license with us covered the school year if you want the summer license Mm. extra. But summer is mostly a time of remediation. The kids who use, who come in for summer programs are typically, again, like higher need students. And so so now we also include summer in all of our base licenses so that if you're using Book Nook over the summer to um, help kids to catch up, um, you're not asked to pay an additional fee for that.
1: Okay. Yeah, great. That all sounds like it makes a lot of sense. So, what has the response been? What what kind of impact have you seen, and how have people responded to this?
2: Yeah, yeah. As you can imagine, our our board and investors had a lot of questions about this. Yeah. Uh, okay. And uh, you know, it was our view that that you know it was the right thing to do. Um and um, you know, in a, a crowded marketplace of education technology companies, we felt it was a statement of values that would resonate mm-hmm. with our partners, um, and so you know the response has been incredible, um, and. Uh, we have seen districts that have approached us uh, and wanted to work with us specifically because of our equity-based pricing model. Mm. And they read the story Ed Surge wrote about it and they said, you know, this is the kind of, of company that understands us and understands our community and that's who we want to work with. Um, and, you know, we've also seen, um, yeah, just, you know, when we do those like introductory meetings with, you know, a superintendent or a principal and are, are describing our program, and we get to the, you know, the part about the equity-based pricing model, you know they light up they've, they've never heard of it before um and i think it it like i said it it conveys a shared set of values that i think is really meaningful um and um so i think you know yeah we, we maybe you know aren't getting as much out of that contract as we could have if we weren't using this pricing structure but um, it's helped us to you know create so many more really vibrant relationships and partnerships with school systems that um, if I had to do over again, I would 100% do it. Um, I think it's been terrific for our business, and you know, has helped us create access to programs that are directly addressing the opportunity gap for many more kids than I think we could have otherwise.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. Well, kudos for you. That sounds like a a change that could have been hard to get through, but makes a lot of sense and can have a big impact.
2: Yeah, we're lucky. I mean, you know, we're a dual bottom line company. Um, We're fortunate that our investors are dual bottom line investors. Um, So I think, you know, I think if we had raised like traditional venture capital, it might've been a harder conversation to have. Um, But we're really fortunate that we have investors who get that our company will never just optimize purely for profit, that we will always have a focus on the social good of what we do. And, you know, I I think a lot of companies say that, um, but you know, like we put our money where our mouth is, like we really, you know, live that value. Um, and like I said, I, I hope other companies will, will follow that example, not necessarily doing exactly how we do it, but just reflecting on how you, you know, intersect with vulnerable communities and communities of color. Um, and, you know, thinking about how, um, how you can, you know, come into those relationships mindful of, you know, the privilege that you bring as a technology company that, probably is, you know, populated internally by mostly people that are college educated and fairly privileged. And like I think that awareness is really important. And I, I do hope more and more companies are thinking about that.
1: Yeah. And then I also saw that you announced you were providing free back to school access for for teachers. What it, what does that include for your company and what has the impact been?
2: Yeah. Yeah. We're actually um, now providing free end of the school year <laughs> access for teachers. Um, you know, uh, but we were just, you know, as you can imagine, and, and this is true, I'm sure, most education technology companies, like we were just bombarded with teachers um, looking for tools that could help their students. Um, yeah. And prior to the pandemic, really the only way a teacher would, would use BookNook is if their school district had adopted it or their principal had adopted it. And we were a small team, we couldn't like train individual teachers, you know, like we didn't have the automation for them to be able to get, you know, to kind of like do a self-serve type model. Um, so uh, when we saw that coming in from teachers we made the decision that, that again, the right thing to do was to figure out how to support those teachers and not to be like, well, I'll tell your principal about this, but to give them a tool they could use. So uh, over the summer, we built a kind of self-serve function at Book Nook. So a teacher could go and, sign up, could get a bookmark account, could create accounts for their students. Uh, we give them access to the full range of what the app can do. There's no like paywalls or restrictions to it. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, we launched that in the fall. Um, what we will do is eventually after some period of time, we will ask teachers to help us you know, start a conversation with their principal about a school-wide adoption and All we ask is that they, you know, make an introduction to their principal. And if they do that, then we extend the trial for the rest of the school year. So we we give it to you for free for a while. Then we ask you to introduce us to your principal. And if you do that, you get it for free for the rest of the school year.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So potentially a great, a great solution to help teachers now, but also can help get you in the door to have a bigger conversation later.
2: Exactly. Yeah. And, And we find that, you know, the, the work that we do, in our structured and paid program where we come and do PD and we set up, you know, administrator dashboards and work with you to kind of define your goals for the program. Ultimately that's going to result in in better outcomes for students than teachers just sort of, you know, organically adopting it on their own. Um, and you know, you could have two teachers in the same school that are both using Booknook with their kids, but neither of them realizes that they are, and they're missing opportunities to you know share experiences and learn from each other. And so so we do still view the end goal as like, let's get the whole school using Booknook, but um, as you pointed out, yeah, we can hopefully kind of get our foot in the door with teachers who find us and want to be early adopters. And then, you know, we can work with them to talk about how we get the whole school um, to, you know, to be able to use the program. And, and we've had tremendous success with it. You know, we get about, about like a quarter of the time, um, you know, a teacher who initially adopts BookNook on their own is able to get the whole school online, uh, which, oh. um, you know, we're pretty excited about.
1: Yeah, that's great. Yeah. So could you talk a little bit more about your investors and just how, you know, it, it sounds like you have investors that really believe in uh, your mission and and have supported the decisions you've made. What sort of planning did you have have in advance to in in uh, kind of selecting which investors you were okay with bringing on board, and how much has that had pros or cons for you? And what could you share there for others?
2: Yeah, I mean, um, some companies are fortunate to be able to choose their investors, and some companies are are you know, sort of just trying to get funding where they can find it. Right. Um, yeah. You know, uh, if you are in a position where you get to choose your investors, yeah, you know, uh, this is my second company. You know, we have talked about reading partners. Like, if there's one lesson I have learned it is that values matter, um, and making sure that your team are all lined around the values of the company um, is crucial. And then similarly, making sure your investors are aligned around values. And so so if your investors come in and say, you know, the the only thing I care about is how profitable this business is. Um, If that is not the only thing you as a founder care about, then that person might not be a great investor for you. Um, And uh, and eventually that that value conflict is going to present itself in business decisions. Um, so, so when I created BookNook, I, you know, created as a social enterprise. I said, you know, I was fortunate enough to be able to kind of choose my investors in some ways. And so, um, you know, said that I wanted to work with investors who believe as I do that dual bottom line companies, um, are the future of the social sector and that this business model that sits sort of in between, you know, straight nonprofits and straight for profits, um, is the most scalable business model to address intractable social problems. Um, and I, I really believe that. Um, and so, so yeah, we've been really fortunate that the, the investors that um, have come around the table for BookNook um, share that value um, and invest only in companies that like us, you know, have a social mission. Um, and I think that means, you know, like I said, like when we have decisions like equity based pricing, I, I think if, if we had gone that like traditional Sandhill road route of VC, I, that might've been a much harder conversation. Um, and so I think I I always encourage founders, like I said, like early on, you know, even before you maybe even have your, your alpha product, like establish the values of the company is about, um, and, and then choose your team and choose your investors and make your business choices consistent with those values. And I think that's, that's a roadmap, not just to building great businesses, but hopefully to greater personal happiness for you as a founder too.
1: Yeah. I like that. Great. And so having led a nonprofit and now leading a social enterprise, what differences have been most challenging or surprising between the two?
2: Yeah. I mean, uh, it's funny, like at Reading Partners, Reading Partners is a nonprofit. I was the one who was like perceived as trying to go really fast and do big things and people would be like, slow down. And then (laughs) I would ask our board, you know, we we, think we can double in size next year, and they'd be like, oh, "Are you sure? That sounds really risky." Um, and of course, in startup land, I'm the slow one now. Um, and you know, I tell my board, I think we can, you know, quadruple next year. They're like, "Only quadruple." Um, uh-huh. So the the expectations around pace and scale um, are just different. Um, and, and I find it really you know refreshing and exciting. Um, mm-hmm. I, I like that I'm the one being pushed to think bigger um, and and then, you know, I think one of the things that, that nonprofits, um, unfortunately don't get given the opportunity to do much is to fail. Um, and mm. uh, I think tech is really built in this notion of like, you know, fail faster, try things. If they don't work, you learn something great from it, you move on. Um, and, you know, when you're, when you're a fundraising organization that, you know, has to essentially recapitalize from your donors every year, I think it, it makes it hard for nonprofits to take those kinds of risks. Um, and interesting. You no, know, yeah. I think a philanthropic funder is not okay with you coming back and be like, remember that grant you gave me that I said we're going go to go this with? Whoo. What a disaster. <laughs> but what we learned from it is right. we can actually do something. You know what I mean? Like it's just a, it's, it's different. Um, yeah. And by the way, not to get on my soapbox, but it's a shame and a kind of missed opportunity because ironically, like philanthropy is your ideal risk capital right like those those donors don't expect to get their money back um and so uh and so i really think yeah. you know I, I hope philanthropy you know uh, thinks more about you know productive failure and and is more you know willing to take those risks and like i said they don't need to get a return on that investment to take back to their lps or their shareholders um but um but yeah it's been it's been wonderful being in a culture where you know, we get to like try big, bold things. And if we fail, it's, you know, I wouldn't say it's celebrated, but I would say, you know, if you fail, but you learn something from it, that's not viewed as like, therefore it was a waste. Um, and so I, I value that too. It's definitely enabled us to do, like I was describing some of this iteration and evolution of what BookNook is, was that we we had the freedom to fail. Um, and I think that was really important.
1: Yeah, that's so interesting. Yeah, I wonder how, how or if that change could, happen in the nonprofit
2: sector. Hmm. Yeah. Um, if you have any very wealthy philanthropists who like listen to your podcast, Jen, um, <laughs> they will, you they'll go. hear this.
1: <laughs> there you go. All right. So I'd love to hear what's next for BookNook. It sounds like you've seen a lot of growth. How do you envision the company's continued development over the next five years, let's say?
2: Yeah. Um, you know, there are Um, As you may have seen, there's a tremendous energy right now around tutoring as a response to the pandemic. And Mm -hmm. we're seeing states legislating and appropriating the federal government as part of the Biden stimulus is engaging. Um, You know, there is a really exciting kind of convergence of things where this idea that like supplemental instruction for kids outside of school, um, or maybe even at school, but coordinated with school is... Um, a really crucial part of how we respond to the pandemic. Um, and uh, we are fortunate, again, better to be lucky than be good that we had already begun developing a program where we can do just that. We piloted it last summer in Oakland. We've expanded it now to uh, six states. Um, and, uh, you know, I think a lot of the next five years for us is like taking advantage of this, you know, stars kind of aligning around tutoring to not just do a tremendous amount of good for kids by providing, you know, impactful high dose tutoring, um, but but I hope actually going one step further and creating an expectation in public education of universal free access to tutoring, um, and that uh, it should not work how it works today, which is that if your child is struggling with reading and you are a wealthy privileged person, you take them down to Kumon or Sylvan and pay eighty bucks an hour, and your kid gets taken care of. Um, Right. And If you aren't someone who could afford that too bad. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think it has to be something that is provided with the same sort of universal universal access as public education itself. Um, and uh, kids should have a right to remediation. Um, and uh, I think that, you know, what, what I think we can achieve at Book Nook is to fundamentally change that narrative over the next five years to the point where um, it just becomes something that schools are expected to provide um, and are funded to provide. Um, and so, mm. so we are betting big on, um, you know, both continue to grow what we do supporting classroom teachers and you know, core instruction, but we are betting big on tutoring um, and seeing it as probably the, the straightest line we have towards, you know, both having huge impact for kids and then also, you know, taking advantage of the opportunity that the pandemic has created to maybe actually make some progress with, um, you know, the structures of public education and to get them to a more equitable place where they serve all students well.
1: Yeah. Awesome. Well, I look forward to following that progress, Michael. Thank you so much for joining the podcast today, and I appreciate your time.
2: Yeah, my pleasure, Jen. Thanks for having me.
0: for joining us for this episode of Impact Drivers. Make sure to visit our website at impactdrivers.io where you can subscribe to the podcast. I'm looking for feedback as I continue to build out the show. Have any thoughts on what you've liked or haven't liked? Email me at jen@impactdrivers.io. Join us next time for a chance to be inspired and learn from the entrepreneurs daring to build the hard businesses that create a better world.